On today's podcast, we'll be joined by marine scientist, shark expert, and star of Discovery's Shark Week special, Monsters of the Cape, Dr. Craig O'Connell. He's here to tell us all about the sharks of Montauk and the Cape Cod area. And he's also going to talk about the new technology that's been proven to deter sharks from humans. All that and more is coming up on this episode of Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before, or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. Today, I'm stoked to welcome a friend and very special guest, Dr. Craig O'Connell. He's a marine biologist and star of Discovery's Shark Week special, Monsters of the Cape. Welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for having me, Luke. Absolutely. I'm excited to be on here with you. Uh, the last time I saw you, we were up in your neighborhood and we were tagging sharks and hanging out. How did the summer treat you? The summer was the best one yet. Um, we caught... I mean, last year we caught 25 sharks and tagged them, and we thought that was a good season. But this summer, we caught 75 sharks that ranged from everything from small dogfish up to uh, a 16-foot common thresher shark. So it was incredible. We got a lot of tags deployed, so we did really well. There's uh, probably a lot of uh, shark fishermen who are jealous of those stats out there. That's, that's a pretty good season. Yeah, they're all trying to find out where I was catching them, but I'm yeah. not telling them. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Yeah. So uh, tell everybody, you know, who you are, what you do, and where you work and what you work on. I am the executive director and founder of a youth education and shark research nonprofit that we operate out of Montauk, New York, and it's a really exciting nonprofit. What we do is we, we are actively conducting shark research and shark conservation research. We're testing out new technologies to save sharks. But in addition to that, we're actually taking high school students out on the boat with us so that they can get hands-on with sharks, so they can tag sharks. We had a couple high school students this summer help us put tags in baby great whites, so it's absolutely incredible. Um, and we're out in Montauk all summer doing this every single day. It's tiring, but it's probably one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. Now, are you one of these guys that saw Jaws as a kid and thought, I need to get involved with that and followed it literally to where Jaws was inspired by? Yeah, in a way. I mean, you always hear about Jaws and it, it invoking all this fear in everybody. But for me, it was more of fascination. But uh, I took a course, a marine mammalogy course, down in the Florida Keys. When I was 14 years old, I was out at a reef, and uh, I kind of swam away from everybody. And out in the distance, I saw this silhouette, and I was like, what the hell is that? And I kept looking, and it kept getting bigger and bigger, and my heart started to race, and I realized it was a shark. And immediately in my head, I was like, I'm done. Like, this is what happens in Jaws. This is the exact same scenario. And the shark came up to me got within about five feet from me. I could see its eye. I was staring at it. My heart was racing and it just swam right by. We locked eyes. It was as curious in me as I was in it. And it left me alone. And like after that moment, I was absolutely hooked. I was like, this is it. I want to figure out what these animals are all about. 
Uh, I remember you telling me that you actually wanted to be a dolphin guy to start with. Is that right? Yeah, dolphins, whales. I mean, I can't believe we're telling everyone this. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I have a fascination with all all wildlife. But in particular, I was, I was very interested in working with dolphins and whales. I took this course in high school, marine mammalogy course, to go learn about dolphins. And while I'm there learning about dolphins, I see my first wild shark and it was game over. I was like, this is what I want to work on. They leveled up to sharks. I mean, that's, yep. that's uh, not a particularly unusual thing. I mean, I think sharks are such a source of inspiration and, and, and sheer awe for people in the water that anybody who's attracted to the water will see them and just go, I want to be involved with this animal. That's, that's yeah. pretty incredible. Do you they're, remember what species it was, the first one that you a, saw? It was a Caribbean reef shark, but I remember I, getting on the boat and being like, I just swam with a great white, like, oh my God. <laughs> And I described it, and they're like, "No, that was a Caribbean reef shark, but it was big. It was five or six feet long, so it was it was amazing." And now you have your PhD. Is uh, is the PhD specifically in sharks, or in a different field? Yeah, so my PhD is is specifically in sharks. Um, it's technically in marine science and conservation engineering. So basically, I have been highly trained in developing new types of technologies that can help protect marine wildlife. And for me, what I did during my PhD is I developed this massive magnetic barrier as a way to potentially um, replace beach nets and drumlines in areas like South Africa and Australia. This new technology is non-invasive. It's eco-friendly and it was very successful. I'm going next week to test it in the Cape again. And then next summer, we're going to do a very extensive test where we deploy about a football field length of this new exclusion barrier to see if it can effectively manipulate these great white sharks. And if it does, um, it means that we may be able to utilize this technology in South Africa, in Australia, in Reunion Island as an alternative to their lethal approaches to shark mitigation. So it's exciting. Now, you're no stranger to Shark Week. We love seeing you every year. This year, you're on Monsters of the Cape. Tell me about that. Well, that was a pretty fascinating and exciting and nerve-wracking film um, in the sense that we were going to an area that I used to go body surfing all the time um, as a kid. And I used to go in the water without a single thought of there being a great white shark there, right? And now the Northwest Atlantic white shark population is recovering and at that same particular beach that I used to go to as a kid, it happens to be one of the best sites in the entire world to go see great white sharks. Um, these sharks are um, navigating right along the shoreline in super shallow water. I mean, you could go to the beach in Chatham, in Cape Cod, it's called Nauset Beach, and see sharks about 10 feet away from the dry sand. Huge 15-foot great white sharks. It's mind-blowing. Because of that, the people are crying out. They want to find a solution. So we were there testing out two unique technologies, my exclusion barrier, which is a visual and magnetic barrier that I have been able to demonstrate can manipulate and exclude bull sharks from bait, but I've never tested it on white sharks yet. So I was really nervous about it. And we also had this sound buoy that we wanted to test out. Um, Mark Rackley, the cameraman, and Foe, the other cameraman, um, developed this really exciting piece of technology where a lifeguard can have a button. They press the button and there's a buoy offshore about 100 feet from the shoreline. Um, and that buoy is connected to a speaker. Um, and through this Bluetooth connection, as they press the button, it activates the speaker. The speaker emits a sound 
And um, we're hoping that that sound would actually deter white sharks and give lifeguards a sufficient amount of time to go out and get that swimmer that could potentially be in distress out of the water. We use the sound buoy um, a little bit further offshore, about three miles offshore, and we were transmitting a variety of different sounds to these white sharks as they approached. And we were kind of messing around at first. We were like, let's see what happens if we play the sound of a exploding bomb. What would that do? And we figured the sound is going to be so harsh and so loud, and it's going to create these massive vibrations underwater that the white sharks are going to swim away. Then we started playing the vocalizations of orcas. And at first we played them and we saw these very subtle turns away and the sharks would disappear and then the sound would go off and the sharks would come right back in. And we were like, huh, that was interesting. And then we kept doing it. We did it about 10 different times and the result was always the same. These very slow turns away and they would go exit frame, we'd turn the sound back on, and the sharks would come right back in. Mm. So it was an indication that maybe that sound um, was not only heard by the sharks, but they recognized it as potential danger, and it temporarily caused them to move out of the area. I've always thought that sound would be the ideal. Yeah, if we could figure out what sound will deter white sharks in particular, white sharks and bull sharks, right? They're our biggest problems. Um, if we could use sound, then it's, you know, non-invasive, it works over a very long distance, um, not very expensive, that'd be amazing. Um, I was part of a, uh, a study that used orca sounds in Guadalupe, this must have been 15 years ago, and the sharks didn't care, they actually ate the speaker, bit the speaker. Get out of here. And yeah. So there you uh, go, that's why didn't, more... Didn't do more anything, <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to admit, the study wasn't well set up. I think... We're going to have to look into other sounds, but like just trying to find a sound that could potentially be a deterrent is it could take years, right? And then it might work on white sharks and it won't work on bull sharks. So you may need another sound for bull sharks. Um, so it's something that's going to require a ton of effort. But like you, um, I agree that sound would be an excellent tool if you can actually find a sound that works. It travels extremely fast and far underwater. Um, we know sharks have excellent hearing. Um, they can determine the directionality of the sound using their lateral line. So we've also learned is if you continually present the same um, auditory stimulus, the same sound to a shark, um, they will rapidly habituate to it and it will no longer be effective. So it has to be something that's almost surprising to the shark. You know, that lifeguard sees that shark and for the first time all day, boom, he presses the button. Maybe the shark recognizes that as a deterrent and it swims out of frame. But again, the work is still in its infancy. It needs a lot more research. And the fact that you told me that about Guadalupe, I think we have to look for another auditory sound <laughs> shark deterrent. Yeah, a couple <laughs> of years ago in Bahamas, we did, uh, it was uh, admittedly kind of a silly experiment just to see what would happen, you know, just one of those fun ones. And uh, we just played different kinds of music. We had set up one of our, our audio guy, we set him up as a DJ and, <laughs> and uh, we played different types of music to the sharks there. We had uh, tiger sharks and Caribbean reef sharks and lemon sharks as well. And uh, I was going for heavy metal. I wanted them to all be, you know, complete metalheads but they didn't like that um really? you know we've we even played them like baby metal like korean <laughs> hardcore heavy metal <laughs> yes. and uh they didn't like it and i was all i was all disappointed about that i thought that'd be <laughs> cool but uh you know what they did come in for 
boy band music. Get out of here. Yep. It was just the worst stuff to have to listen to for you know, a long time underwater. But they, well, actually, it might have been okay because they did come up and try to bite the speaker. So maybe they did have good taste <laughs> there after you all. Go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Everyone wants a shark repellent to work every single time. But in reality, it's it's not. It's never, You're never going to find the silver bullet shark repellent that works 100% of the time on great whites, on tiger sharks, on bull sharks. Every shark species is physiologically different, which means you need a slightly different repellent or different approach to maximize the effectiveness on each species. Now, for the people who are just listening, um, you're indicating that you know your magnets are much, much larger. Give us some physical dimensions and you know the size of the barrier or field that it might be casting off. Yeah, so the magnets that I use are almost identical to the size of like a clay brick. So let's say they're about eight inches long by two inches thick by four inches wide. Um, So they're absolutely massive. The magnetic field extends approximately one meter or three feet away from the magnet. And we are creating a continuous barrier from seafloor to sea surface, from shoreline to shoreline. It could be hundreds of meters long, hundreds of feet long. Um, And because of the positioning of the magnets throughout the barrier, the magnetic field is continuous throughout the entire barrier. It's this invisible deterrent extending all throughout the barrier and roughly three feet away from the barrier. So you have have the uh, electromagnetic deterrent, the magnets, and you also have this visual deterrent, this, this massive structure in front of the sharks, which yeah. is composed of this, this black piping. And the thing about the barrier um, that's exciting um, is that we have committed to fundraising for the material cost of the barrier. One of the previous issues we had with one of my other technologies I worked on is that it was too expensive. It's cheaper to deploy these nets it's cheaper to deploy drum lines as a way to protect our beaches and deploy your non-invasive technology. So what we're doing um, is we're raising money so that we can actually fund the costs of the barriers. And what is the cost of a barrier? So it's cheap. Um, we're deploying a um, about a 100-meter section, 300-foot uh, section, and it's costing roughly $10,000. Um, so it's, it's inexpensive in the sense that, like, the previous barriers I've worked on were millions. Um, yeah. So this is this is a great step in the right direction. And how does it actually work? Like what what systems is it messing up or deterring or and it, is this something that will work across species? I know the the research is young, but if we're deploying it, we have to know, right? Yeah. So so basically, what we've learned um, and what we're continuing to learn is. Um, Sharks utilize their ampullae of Lorenzini, so all those pores on the snout of the shark, their electrosensory system to detect electric fields given off by prey. But we've also learned that we believe or we hypothesize that these sharks are utilizing that sensory system to also detect the Earth's geomagnetic fields in order to navigate. If you see those, those massive aggregations of scalloped hammerheads moving through Um, the Galapagos Islands or Cocos, we believe that they're picking up on the unique geomagnetic signatures underwater to get from point A to point B in the referenceless pelagic ocean, right? So those magnetic fields are extremely weak, about 0.25 to 0.65 Gauss. And so what we're doing is presenting them with a much stronger magnetic stimulus that's about 
one to 2,000 Gauss, orders of magnitude greater in strength, and we believe or hypothesize that it's overwhelming their electrosensory system and deterring them away from the area. Now, what we've learned is that these magnets are more effective on species like bull sharks um, because they're highly electroreceptive. They're swimming around in murky water. They're less reliant on their vision and more reliant on their electrosensors in order to navigate and find prey. Whereas we haven't seen that they're super effective on great white sharks. We have seen some very good flinches and avoidance behaviors from them. But we've learned that just the visual components of our structure, of the exclusion barrier, is sometimes sufficient enough to deter white sharks because they are highly visual predators relying Mm. on their visual system to find prey. Is there an argument for saying that sharks might be attracted to this new structure? I mean, if it's acting as you know, a fad or, you know, a fish attracting device, you know, this new structure, it's going to attract small bait fish, it's going to attract other things, you know, would sharks sense a magnetic field and think that it's something to navigate to, at least for a little while? <laughs> I, I, mean, I hope not. <laughs> I, I can just, I, I can see the news articles now. I mean, we, we look at a lot of stuff on this show and, and you know, people are overnight shark experts and they're like, oh, sharks navigate by magnetic fields. This guy thinks that setting up a 100-meter-long magnetic field in front of a tourist beach is a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know what? It's funny you say that because that's exactly how I came up with the idea yeah. is I was taking marine biology and I was taking physics at the same time. I learned about the process of uh, magnetic detection. I learned about the fact that sharks may use the Earth's magnetic field to navigate. And I was like, well, why don't we set up a string of magnets all along the shoreline. And if they're attracted to magnetic fields, you can just simply redirect their swimming behavior out to sea. That's the way I was thinking. And then we started finding out that it was more of a deterrent. Um, But in in reality, I I can't say if the barrier structure is going to act as an attractant or a deterrent until we extensively test it. How does this approach differ to uh, like some of the other approaches going on in your area? So, you know, we've seen news articles come out about, you know, acoustic buoys and, you know, these sort of high tech buoys that are detecting the tag sharks that are swimming around. It sounds like yours is a deterrent, whereas the other one is more of an awareness tool. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, right now in Cape Cod, they're deploying these real-time receivers um, that I think are really awesome. And they are notifying the public whenever there's a tag shark that swims by an area. Um, and in the past, you know, there's been detections here, here, there. But now as time continues, because they're tagging more and more sharks, um, they're getting more and more detections and, and, and more and more alerts to allow these people that are utilizing the waters in Cape Cod that hey, there's a great white shark nearby. It may be a good idea to, to get out of the water, let, let it do its thing and, and move on. So um, I think it's a really great approach. I mean, science and knowledge is power and, and what they're doing in Cape Cod is using a super non-invasive approach to learn as much as they possibly can as quickly as they can about these white sharks to proactively protect um, the beachgoers and the swimmers. What happens if one of those animals is swimming around the beach and we don't know that it's there and we're in the water? Um, and it's it's definitely a understandable reaction, um, you know. But at the end of the day, this is this is science. It takes time. But the fact that they are tagging all these animals, they're learning about the migratory patterns of these sharks when they hang out in shore. Um, in terms of day versus night, um, when's the safest time to go out in the water? Mm. They're learning all this information to maximize beachgoer safety, and I think it's a really good approach. 
what is it about the, you know, I, I'm kind of mixing these together, but, you know, Montauk, I know is not Cape Cod, but you're still in the same kind of like marine system there. What is it about this particular area that is such a, uh, a rich source of knowledge in sharks? Like, why are people focusing on this area? Both Montauk and Cape Cod exhibit the perfect locations to get hands-on with these animals so that you can learn as much as you possibly can. I could go to Cape Cod right now to a particular location and be extremely confident that I'm going to see at least one sub-adult to adult great white shark and, and possibly up to 11 in the span of two to four hours. I went to Cape Cod one day. In two hours, we saw 11 different great white sharks. That's the perfect opportunity right there to collect data on these awesome animals, right? So it's a hot spot. In Montauk, same thing. We don't have routinely don't have great white adult great white sharks there, although they are around. But what's also very unique about Montauk um, in the past two to three years, we have been seeing an absolute increase in abundance of spinner and black tip sharks. So much so that I can I can literally say that I was surrounded by um, a thousand spinner sharks one day in my boat. Um, which wow. is completely unnatural for Montauk. Um, I have no idea what they were doing. I couldn't see any prey, but they were literally jumping into the sides of my boat. But again, it offered this excellent opportunity to tag these animals and get an insane amount of data over a really small time scale. Now that sounds like a pretty extraordinary encounter. Uh, give people some size of you know the the scale of these animals. You know how big are spinner sharks, and what's it like being surrounded by a thousand of them banging into your boat? Yeah. So what, what was amazing about the encounter is I had my two year old and my four year old in the boat, as well as my wife. And we drove past this one part, we were looking for humpback whales, and there was nothing, not even a ripple in the ocean, but it was flat calm. I said, guys, we're far enough, let's start heading back, the sun's starting to set. And on our way back, I saw all this weird, like, white water, it looked like an extremely strong current, and the waves looked like they were just smashing against each other. So I got a little nervous, I was like, what in the world is happening? So we, we get a little bit closer, and I start seeing all these little fins coming out of the water. And I was like, holy crap. We got a little bit closer and I realized it was it was about two football fields of just sharks jumping out of the water. Their fins coming out. Now these are spinner sharks. They're roughly five to seven feet long. And before we knew it, I drove directly into the middle of the school or the shiver of sharks wanting to see what the heck was happening. And they were acting so aggressively that they were bumping into the sides of my boat. So you're out there and you just hear boom, like just right into the sides of the boat. My kids are like, oh, my God, are we okay?" (laughs) But they loved it. They realized that they were safe. And then we just had all these sharks swimming around. So um, that's become a fairly common sight in Montauk. What's really unique about Montauk um, is that, uh, let's say in Cape Cod right now, they have an explosion of gray seals, right? And what we're starting to notice with time is that the population, the range of it is expanding and expanding. And these animals are finding new spots to hang out throughout the summer months um, so that they can effectively find food and survive. Um, And so what we found is that in Montauk, there's this one particular island that 
used to really not have any seals at all. And now we could go there and we could see up to a hundred seals um, in the middle of the summer months because uh, there's an abundance of prey. It's a, a great site where there's there's little competition with other seals. And we're beginning to look at that site as a potential hotspot for white sharks. It's a new abundance of prey. Um, and we filmed a massive adult female white shark at that particular site in the middle of the Long Island or Block Island Sound, um, which is new. So scientists actually determined that the entire New York Bight, which is the area from Cape May to Montauk, it's this massive, expansive area, shallow, deep, um, highly dynamic. Um, but scientists in the 1980s already designated that site or this entire region as a great white shark nursery. So now what we're doing as scientists is looking for particular sites within that massive designated area to see if they are hotspots for great white sharks. And so there is a spot, um, especially where we worked when you were out there, that is being designated as a hotspot for great white sharks. And now we're trying to figure out why. Why are these white sharks centered at this particular spot for um, roughly two weeks every year? They show up to the point where we could see five to ten of them swimming around our boat, these tiny little great whites, um, in, every, in any given day. So it's a really special spot. We're working to try and figure out why. Now, with that being a sort of designated nursery and an area where we know that there's going to be juveniles or different sharks, could that be at all threatened by some of these other species of sharks that are perhaps moving north, chasing the, the now warmer waters? What makes me the most nervous is that we're going to see what they're seeing in California, um, is that as the temperatures begin to rise, even just a degree or two, these white sharks are going to continue making their way um, east or, or northeast away from our particular sites in Montauk. And I'm not going to see them as much anymore. And it's, it's upsetting to me because this summer I was literally in my boat saying, I am so grateful to be out on this particular spot. Like we're surrounded by great white sharks. I can't believe this is my life. Like mm. I literally said that. And then in the back of my mind, I was like, uh, this might not last forever. Like we're starting to see tropical shark species and subtropical species making their way into our waters. That might mean that these pups don't hang around here as much anymore. So that could be the realistic future if global warming continues to go in this trend or in this direction. We might not be seeing as many of these pups, and that's upsetting. We're learning that the loss of, you know, even 10 actual individuals, great white sharks could have catastrophic effects on the overall population health. And so, you know, if you think about that, if we're changing the entire dynamics of the ecosystem, which may be con potentially contributing to the loss of, you know, upwards of 10 to 20 great white shark pups, that's a disaster. So we want to do whatever we can to prevent that. Now, is your work mostly going out with the kids and kind of surveying the sharks that you find while on these trips? Or are you also out there not doing the sort of education trips and doing more sort of solid research? Like, how would you, how do you break that up? For instance, we'll go out and catch some pretty large sharks. Like I said, a 16 foot thresher. Um, and we're in charge of all those activities. But then we integrate youth education by once we have the shark secured to the side of the boat, we teach the kids all about it and they get to tag the animal, which is super exciting. It's educational. Um, and it's, I feel like it's inspiring for them and it makes them want to do it in their future. Um, so we do do the camp, but on the weekends when we're not doing camp, we go out there and we do pretty rigorous research. Um, and we also do like research weeks. So whenever we're not doing camp and we have good weather, we'll go out to Montauk 
and we'll spend 12 to 14 hours a day out on the water and we use every minute possible to collect data. Um, and it's exhausting, but amazing and rewarding at the same time. So we're, I'm out there a lot. It sounds like a monster of work for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, yep. So fast forward, you know, four or five years in the future and, you know, we're hearing about these, um, you know, super technological buoys that are out there detecting the sharks going through. Maybe you've got a few barriers around. I've heard about these uh, orca sound type things that might be also deterring sharks. But at the same time, the waters are getting warmer. Tourism is still a increased presence. Five years in the future, are we still seeing these sort of incidental bites happening as people are using the waters around Montauk or are we going to get it under control? I mean, I, I think it's it's still going to happen. You know, there's still people entering the water. We can deploy barriers. We can deploy these buoys to, to protect ourselves, to mitigate the risk. But the second you put your toe into that water, you're stepping into the shark's realm and the risk substantially increases um, in comparison to you just staying on the beach. So hmm. um, I, I do think there's still going to be negative encounters in the future. You know, we, we hear about these negative encounters and then the government lashes out and says, we got to go out there and kill this shark. We need to set nets and drum lines and we're setting ourselves back a, a hundred years. Yeah. Um, we can't respond that way. Um, we have to find other ways to coexist with these animals and we're working on it. Do you think that there's a, an argument for saying that less data is better for the average person? Because the more we understand about these sharks, the more we know where they're going, the more pings people are getting on their smartphones, the bing, bing, bing shark out there, it, it becomes more of a zeitgeist. It becomes something that people want to talk about. And I do wonder how much of that is positive for the sharks or negative, you know, the it's likely sure. the same number of negative interactions are going to happen. You know, historically, we're seeing them increase, what, slightly, but, you know, not exponentially like the people using the waters uh, has. So, you know, overall, yeah. we're actually looking at probably a decrease. Yeah. Are you saying it's, like ignorance is bliss type of thing? I think there is an argument for ignorance is bliss. I yeah, mean, not that I agree. I, I'm not advocating for that whatsoever. I think no. research is good. <laughs> I want to understand as much as we can about these sharks. But but I I do wonder the expectations of some people where they're like, hey, cool, we can look up on our smartphone when a shark's only around. The minute one comes in without a tag, suddenly that entire system is flawed and we need to either tag them all or something. I don't know. It's, yeah. No, I... I, I I completely understand exactly what you're saying. Um, you know, like in New York now, um, there's been a massive surge of people buying their own drones and they're taking them out to the beach. And because of that, they're spotting sharks consistently and the beaches are being shut down almost every single day. Yeah. Whereas, you know, just a year prior, no one had drones at those beaches and they're in the water and the sharks were still there and everybody was fine. So it has created this massive um, hype and hysteria, like, oh, there's sharks out there. Get out of the water. But meanwhile, the years prior, you've been in the water swimming with sharks and you had absolutely yeah, everyone no was just idea. fine. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I could understand your point. But at the end of the day, I feel like knowledge is power. Um, and the more we can learn about these animals, the better we can educate people and make more informed or educated decisions. And I feel like the safer we're going to be. I think we just need to do more and better work to get people the right information so that in the knowledge that they're amassing, 
you know, even on their own, like you mentioned, they're going out and, you know, using their own drones and coming to their own conclusions. Yep. How do we better arm people with the right conclusions, the right knowledge that they can, you know, that they can wrap that into rather than it just be hysteria? Because the fact is they've always been there. There are some changes that are going on with temperature and stuff, sure. But, you know, there's always been sharks around us when we're in the water. Maybe just don't freak out so much now that you know about it. Yeah. And, you know, also, Luke, I also think it's the interpretation of that data yeah, um, and how the media kind of twists it to make a story that grabs more attention. Um, that helps perpetuate the fear and make makes the situations much worse. It's about how many people click your article because we just showed a million sharks swimming around people in shark infested waters and the shark went to attack the person, but they got out at the last second. Meanwhile, the shark <laughs> was doing something else. I don't know. It's yeah. It, I think an accurate interpretation of what is actually going on is super important, but that isn't always the case, um, and that leads to more fear. Uh, Dr. Craig O'Connell, thank you so much for joining us on Shark Week, the podcast. It's uh, been a pleasure to have you here, and uh, we'll have to have you back next year after we've understood all this data you've been crunching all all winter. All right, sounds good, Luke. Thank you so much for having me. You got it, brother. Cheers. All mate. right, take care. Dr. Craig O'Connell is one of those guys that I just love exists in shark research. We've got a guy who self-admittedly wanted to go be a dolphin guy, and he found his passion underwater when he saw a shark for the first time. And that was it for him. And his infectious just joy when it comes to sharks is something that I absolutely love to see. And it's guys like that that we really need out in the field. He's working in a very dynamic area. He's working in an important nursery area for many different sharks. He's also working in what is historically an area where sharks have been villainized and uh, targeted by fishermen in the area. So having someone like Craig who can, you know, very convincingly convey that love and passion for sharks, but also the need for sharks, while also at the same time saying, you know what, we also need to coexist in a non-invasive way. Let's figure out ways that humans can better understand and, and better work with sharks in our waters and still be able to use our waters as well and have a practical sense about that. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And the work that he's doing, and I wanted to kind of dedicate the fin to uh, the work that he's doing with kids. Now, he's taking high school age kids out on these shark camps and teaching them how to be shark scientists. And this is such important work. We don't have enough programs today that focus on enabling kids to understand the work of a scientist. And this is something where that could literally inspire the next generation of people who will change the world. And we need this in every field of research. But the work that Craig is doing in particular, me as a kid would have been my dream to go do it. So I want to encourage anybody who's listening who has those uh, those kids or, you know, the, the high school age or even college kids who are thinking, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And those ones who want to be marine biologists who continually ask us, we get so much questions on this podcast, on our social media, and it's always the same question. How can I be like you? How can I, and I don't say that with any sort of uh, self-aggrandizing whatsoever, it's people who are watching Shark Week, who are inspired by the experts who are out there, who 
want to understand what it's like to actually be a scientist, you know, this is your opportunity to go do it. So uh, contact Craig and you can get him at the OCSfoundation.org. It's O-S-E-A-S-F-D-N.org. Just search for the OCS Foundation. It's a nonprofit. All the money that goes into paying for those camps goes into his research. So Craig, thanks for what you're doing out there. It's absolutely fantastic. And that's it for today's episode. I want you to stay tuned to this feed as we continue to cover the sharkiest current topics, talking to top scientists and experts to learn all about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction. Thanks for listening to Shark Week, the podcast. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more shark fun facts. I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you next time.